You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that you have given us not only the light of Christ in his person and in his work, but now you have given us your word that we might know how to walk in him. So, Father, we pray that uh, we might sit well under your word tonight and that we might uh, be more and more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This is one of those perfect storm nights in which if you are a lower elementary age student and you have already checked in with a sticker on, all right, yep, yep, we got some Johnson boys ready to rock. Uh, you guys can head out with your teachers. And also, if you are a fourth through a sixth grader, uh, and this is a torch night, which means you don't have to have already checked in for that. But if you want to head out with Cedric and Jordan, um, yep, uh, you guys are going to talk about Ephesians together. Uh, And then we'll see you fourth through sixth graders back here. Well, there are, man, we just lost half of this room. That's great. There are are many of us in this room uh, who really like soccer, really like soccer in England particularly. Uh, American interest is certainly increasing, and uh, part of the rooting interest for Americans is to actually watch Americans play at international, like highest, at the highest levels. And last Sunday, a week ago today, was a great day for Americans in England, a smaller team, Leeds United has an American manager, this American manager, uh, who much of England initially dismissed as this dumb American bumpkin who occasionally slips up and calls it soccer instead of football, Uh, an American manager of this team, and then two other young American players, including one guy who scored in this 3-0 trouncing of mighty Chelsea from London. And we Americans, Americans who like soccer, we loved it. Uh, All three of these guys are all really proud that they are Americans. Tyler Adams, after the game, wraps himself up in an American flag, and he's walking around the pitch, and fans of Leeds are chanting USA to him. It was was a great moment. And uh, while these three Americans mostly now call the game football instead of soccer, and they have taken on lots of words and phrases that we Americans don't usually use, uh, it would be such a bummer if in, like, the post-game press conferences... Uh, we heard all these Americans saying something like, yeah, I'm really, really glad to finally be here playing football in England. So glad to have finally gotten out of America. 
and not just then trashing on America, but then if they like started speaking with an English accent on top of it, and they were like, right, couldn't wait to leave that dump in all those dumpy people. That worst country, America, finally be here in England where it's just great. And then we Americans would be like, why are you talking like that? And then the people in Leeds are like, why are you even speaking with like an East London accent instead of a Leeds accent? What's going on? This isn't just an American thing, right? People from all countries want people to remember their roots. And so we say things like, hey, don't get too big for your britches. Remember where you came from. And most of that's really good. Like when you move to a new country, the people of that country, the people of that country that you've just moved to, don't actually expect you to completely renounce the culture of your own country. Well, Paul has a lot to say about identities, has a lot to say about changing allegiances and loyalties and cultures even. Elsewhere in his letters, he has lots to say about becoming a citizen of a new country, a new kingdom. Now, these illustrations that I've just used about changing like countries and cultures kind of break down because in our earthly realities, one country is not inherently better than another. One culture isn't necessarily right while others are wrong. England isn't necessarily better or worse than American culture, nor is Latin or Hispanic culture or African or Asian cultures better or worse than the others. They're just different. They come with different norms and expectations. Cultures are really, really interesting things. And we people, we adapt and we adopt and we transform in the things that we like and that we desire and that we expect. And sometimes that's good. Depending on your perspective, sometimes that's bad. And sometimes, especially if we're like from a smaller place and one of our friends moves away to a big city or something and they've changed, we don't like that. They've like, they've forgotten where they've come from. Man, that guy has gotten too big for his britches. Well, here in Ephesians 4, Paul doesn't ever want the Ephesian Christians to forget where they've come from, but not in a like, hey, stay true to your roots kind of a way. Unlike when you move to a new country, Paul tells the Ephesians to actually renounce their roots, renounce who they were. Paul explains that the way of Christ is to actually completely put off or to move on or to leave the ways that you've left behind and instead become who you actually now are. Become fully the citizen of the new kingdom in which you now live. And so this is a theme that we've seen Paul trace throughout Ephesians, the what was and then what is. So we saw things of darkness, now light, and death, now life, and division, now unity, and mystery, now clarity, and immaturity, now maturity. Paul will kind of sum up all of these things in this paragraph in Ephesians 4 that Chris just read under what we'll use as our two heading titles for tonight, that of remember what you were on the first hand, but then on the second, to become what you are. Remember what you were, and then become what you are. So second, or first of all, here in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, remember what you were. Remember two weeks ago, if you've been with us through this series, through this letter of, to the Ephesians, uh, we said in chapter 4, verse 1, that verse kind of acts like a topic sentence, a fountainhead from which the rest of the letter were, will flow, where Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This 
is the fountainhead through which the, now from which the rest of the letter will flow from. So now, as a maturing, growing, healthy body that builds itself up in love, this corporate body of Christ, the church and body of Jesus, is to walk, now plucked out of the river of indifference and opposition to God, the church is to walk with firm uh, feet on the ground in a manner worthy of the calling. But to clarify what it is, what this manner worthy of the calling actually is, Paul needs to first remind them of what they've been plucked from or saved out of. So verse 17, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, this is a weird thing to say. Gentiles, as many of you would know, it just means a non-Jew. And we know that Paul is actually writing to a mixed audience of Jew and Gentile. There's lots of Gentiles that he's writing to. Remember chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So it, at first glance, might sound like he's like arguing on ethnic grounds, like the British media could tell the American Tyler Adams, you must no longer walk as the Americans do now that you live in this country. You have to be like us. But Paul isn't making ethnic or cultural arguments here. He's not saying you must no, no, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, because remember Gentiles, you now have become Jewish. No, now there is no Jew or Gentile because of what God has done in Christ. In chapter 2, he said that in Christ, God has created one new man in place of the two, so making peace, so that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross. So this is far greater and far deeper than just two ethnic people or two cultures finding common ground or finding understanding. What he is describing here is peoples of various backgrounds, certainly cultural and language and traditions included, but perhaps even more than that, people of different religions, people of different worldviews, people of fundamentally different ways of understanding reality. All of that now being made into one new man. Now again, he's not saying you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and now finally walk like we Jews do, we people of God who have just been immaculately and perfectly walking in just unbelievable wisdom for millennia. No, Paul laments how hard-hearted his countrymen had become, both in the initial rejection of Jesus and in the ongoing rejection in cities that Paul has been traveling around to. Not by all Jews, but by most. So instead, what was needed, not is for a bunch of Gentile people to become Jewish, but instead a new man, no longer Jew or Gentile, but a new man, a new body being made into the head who is Christ. But he is saying that Gentile way of life, don't walk any longer in that Gentile way of life the way of understanding reality apart from the recognition of the covenantal God of the scriptures, the covenantal God of the Hebrew Old Testament as the creator of heaven and earth, the recognition of a God who has revealed himself and revealed his expectations for humanity, who has set forth a pattern of law and sacrifice, of justice and mercy, of salvation and forgiveness that all found its climax, found its culmination in the son of David, in his death at the place of the skull. Life through death, power through weakness. And so, a way of living 
that is completely either unaware of that kind of understanding and living under this God or opposed to this kind of living under this God is what Paul sums up as the way of the Gentiles. And what does he say about the way of the Gentiles? What does it mean to walk like the Gentiles do? The way of past living that these Ephesian Christians had come out of. He describes the Gentiles walking into verse 17 in the futility of their minds. This word futility that the Greek Old Testament uses for that word in Ecclesiastes that we a couple years ago looked at over and over and over again, that Hebrew word of hevel, like vapor, like when you walk out on a crisp winter morning and you can see your breath and it is here and gone and forgotten. That is all of life. Ultimate meaninglessness, or as Paul uses that same word, futility, in Romans 8, where God has subjected the world to futility. There, Paul even means it as an ongoing, frustrating, ultimate meaninglessness. So he says, the Gentiles, those who are not living and operating and viewing reality under the the kingdom of the God of the Jewish scriptures, they are walking in complete, utter, ultimate meaninglessness. That's a big statement. It sounds haughty. It sounds arrogant. It sounds condescending. One commentator says, with one single word, this word of futility, with one single word, Paul describes the majority of the inhabitants of the Greco-Roman Empire people all aiming with silly methods at meaningless goals. He just like waves away with one brush of his hand, with one word. Who does Paul think he is? How dare he? What about the non-Christian, like Gentile politician that Paul might have met when he was traveling around at Philippi or something, who always tried to make honorable decisions that would serve the most amount of people? What about the non-Christian Gentile mother and father that Paul might have met in Corinth who might have worked hard and sacrificially to provide for their children or to provide for their community? Or another Gentile couple in Athens who had listened and heard Paul's preaching about Jesus, considered it, but ultimately didn't receive that good news of the kingdom of Christ breaking into this world. They rejected his teaching of Jesus But then they continued, this man and woman, this wife and husband, they continued to live in a faithful and happy marriage. They genuinely loved and enjoyed one another. Or that single man in Antioch who had committed his life to learning and philosophy, and this had led him to wanting to care for and to pass on knowledge and to shape the next generation below him. And with one single word, Paul sweeps all all of these stories away and all of these lives being lived as minds of futility, lives without ultimate or lasting meaning. Now, what he doesn't say is that these are lives that are not fun or adventurous. They are living lives that are in many ways honorable or admirable. He doesn't say that. But he does say living lives with minds of futility. And as such was the case with all of us in this room. If you are a Christian, Paul is describing your past reality. And here, Paul, very clearly, if you are not a Christian, he is describing your present reality. Now, before getting super defensive, what does he mean? Well, what does he mean by a futile mind? He further explains, verse 18, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And again, this sounds pretty condescending, pretty judgmental. But what is he saying? He's saying that apart from Christ, all people are darkened, alienated, ignorant, and hard-hearted. And this is the entire storyline of the entire Bible. In page one of the Bible, God creates people to live in his light, his presence, his wisdom, and his love. Instead, we humans, we reject his light. We reject his presence, his wisdom, and his love, and we live lives of our own. We live lives in the darkness that are alienated, that are ignorant, and that are hard-hearted. Again, this is not to say that every non-Christian in the world lives a life that is the worst possible version of themselves. No, non-Christians can lead and live lives that, uh, in some understandings of the word, word, actually live deeply meaningful lives. But meaningful how? To say that a life is meaningful, we must actually have a definition and an answer to that age-old question of what is the meaning of life? For something to be meaningful, it needs to be able to answer that question. What is the meaning of life? And we often will repeat the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which the question goes like this, what is the chief end of man? Meaning, what is the meaning of life? What were you created for? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what God has created humanity for, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. If God is the source and the fountainhead of all life, of all joy, of all passion and ethics and honor and goodness and on and on and on, and we were made to know him and to bring glory to his overwhelming glory as the source of this fountainhead of all that is good in the universe, then it only makes sense that to then intentionally remove ourselves, to remove ourselves out of his flowing source of goodness is then to remove ourselves from the source of life, of joy, of goodness. It doesn't mean that non-Christians can't still enjoy many of his good benefits downstream. And the theological category that we have for this is that of common grace. Common grace is what allows Gentile non-Christians to be good citizens, to be honorable teachers and servants, faithful husbands or wives, sacrificial mothers and fathers, and on and on and on. That's good. We can be thankful for God's common grace in these lives, but they are still fundamentally removed from life, from the light of God, to be alienated, separated from God, separated from the meaning of existence. In John's gospel, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. I think in fulfillment of what Kyle read earlier in our call to worship from Isaiah 60, that light has come. And that comes in stark contrast to characters like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who kept coming to Jesus at nighttime in the dark. These were leaders of Israel who should have understood the light of God but were still walking in darkness. All other attempts at meaning are grasping, even by common grace, as what, after what is good and true of lasting importance, but grasping after and trying to grab hold of, almost like trying to remember a dream. You know, where you almost remembered what you dreamed last night, and then it's gone. This is what 
Grasping after meaning apart from the meaning of life actually is. Listen to this paragraph from chapter one in Herman Bavink's The Wonderful Works of God, which I think eight of you have already signed up to read with me. Uh, so more of you can sign up. Listen to this. Maybe this will be a little, a little appetizer for what we'll be reading and talking about together. Bavink says this, hence, all men are really seeking after God, but they do not at all seek him in the right way nor at the right place. They seek him down below, he is up above. They seek him on the earth, and he is in heaven. They seek him afar, but he is nearby. They seek him in money, and property, and fame, and power, and in passion. And he is to be found in the high and the holy places, and with him that is of a contrite and a holy, a humble spirit. But they do seek him. If happily they might feel after him and find him, they seek him, and at the same time they flee him is perhaps you sometimes. They have no interest in the knowledge of his ways, and yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God and at the same time repelled by God. This is the futile mind, or what another describes as a malfunction of the mind. Paul is, des is describing a malfunctioning mind. Sin is kind of like an, an, auto dis, an autoimmune disorder in that way that misinterprets what is actually good in the body, what is good and right, and instead then turns the immune system in onto itself. This is sin, convincing ourselves that what is good is actually dangerous. And perhaps what is dangerous is actually not good. Convincing ourselves that God must exist for me, but forgetting that he is the creator and I am the creature or convincing ourselves that maybe God doesn't exist at all and I can do without him. And then what's even worse than that is then, then this internal futile mind and hard heart actually then translates into external action. So verse 19, Paul goes on to say, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. A world that is filled up with people of futile minds who live in darkness and alienation and ignorance and hard hearts then becomes calloused. The word that Paul uses here, calloused, is literally just kind of, they, they become insensitive. They become unfeeling, which is exactly what a callous does, right? Like if you've ever tried to start learning how to play guitar, the first week or so, your fingertips are on fire. Why? Because you're intentionally trying to jam your fingers into metal wires all day. That doesn't make sense. Why would you want to do that? Well, eventually, after you have done this for a week or two, your fingers then get really tough. They are tough, unfeeling, insensitive calluses. In the same way, minds, hearts, and cultures can lose all sense of moral feeling, of what should be and what should not be. Morality and ethics are not just culturally conditioned. There is a sense in which we humans know that there is something as right and wrong. In fact, I think this is one of the stronger arguments for the existence of God, that we know that something is broken on this plane, that we can call something unjust at all. If we can say that is unjust, the very fact that we say that indicates that there is something called this capital J justice that exists on a higher plane. There is no such thing as a crooked line unless there is first a straight line. And yet what Paul is saying is that the crooked can easily then become assumed individually and culturally as true and straight. 
And so I've shared a, a definition of worldliness before, that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange, that is a calloused heart that has lost moral feeling. And so the former Gentile way has then, end of verse 19, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The things that Paul is talking about here are certainly the kinds of sensual acts and desires of how we use our bodies. And if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting church tonight uh, for the first time in a long time, or maybe the first time, you're thinking, oh yeah, there it is, there it is. These people, they're so obsessed with what people do with their bodies. But what Paul is describing isn't some street preacher with signs or megaphones telling all the students on campus or telling all the people walking down the streets about how they're all going to hell because of what they're doing with their bodies. Paul here is speaking to Christians about the sad reality of all humans, of what our minds are like, the feudal mind before we come to Christ. Remember once, what was once true in your life. And then, as I've already indicated in our two points here, but remember what once was, and then now leave that to become what you are. And so by saying that they are greedy to practice, or what other translations might say, with covetousness. People, we, the, the Gentiles pursue sensual pleasure with covetousness. Paul is describing a human race that longs for one more hit of dopamine or adrenaline after another. One hit after another, after another, after another, after another. One more sense of relational belonging outside of covenantal belonging. That one didn't satisfy, but surely this one will. And then surely this one will, and surely this one will. This is the sad state of reality of a human life that is alienated from God. Never satisfied, but convincing yourself that you are. Living for self-worship instead of living for God-worship. Lie after lie after lie. And like last week, we humans are just gullible children. Gullible children getting taken by the con man day after day after day. We are not aware, we are not mature enough to realize that these idols demand sacrifices. This is not the life that you were made for. This is not the meaning of life. You were made to know God. You were made to walk with him. This is, if you are a Christian, not who you are. It is who you once were, but what Kyle read today, as your assurance of pardon in 2 Corinthians 5, is that you are a new creation. God has done something fundamentally new in you. That was then, this is now. So instead of just remembering what you were or who you were, now secondly, second side of the coin, he flips it over. Become what you are. These last five verses. Verse 20, he says, but... That is not the way you learned Christ. And this is a weird thing for him to say. He doesn't say, but that, listen, that is not what you learned about the holiness of God. But that is not what you learned even about the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus. He says, 
that the way of the Gentiles, the futile, malfunctioning minds that remain in dark alienation from God, this is not the way that you learned Christ. This is not the way that you were educated, that you sat in the classroom of Jesus. To the phrase, to learn a person, fill in the blank with anyone, even outside of the Bible. It's not used in the Bible, but even outside of the Bible and other Greek texts, you never see this kind of phrase. That's not the way you learned Aristotle or Plato. You might have learned the teachings of Aristotle or the teachings of Plato, but not the person. What Paul's saying here is pretty remarkable. He's saying that people who have become Christians don't just say, I'm going to keep my life, but then just do a couple of things differently on Sundays. Christians are people who learn Christ, who know the person and the work of Jesus, the one who is the Hebrews 1, radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The one about whom Jesus says in Luke 24, the entire Old Testament scriptures are about. One commentator says that to learn Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. It is, in other words, to become a disciple. This is not how you became a student, a disciple of the living, risen Lord Jesus. That you have become an active learner of all of him, to become like him in all things, to walk in his ways, to be conformed to his character. It is to leave what was behind apart from him and then to be united to him in heart, in body, in mind, in spirit. Or as we said in the first sermon in Ephesians, Paul's concern in Ephesians and really all of his letters is not whether uh, Christ is in you. Paul is really not concerned whether or not you have received Jesus or have him within you. Far and away, his bigger concern is whether you are in him, whether you have been united in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul says, rather than staying what you were, now be, become who you are. He says in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then in verse 24, to then having put off the old self, verse 24, put on the new self. And so this command to put off is what people do with their clothes. We say in American English, we say take off. I take off my jacket or I take off my shoes. But Put on, in verse 10, is exactly the way that we use it. I put on my jacket. I put on my shoes. This is what Paul is saying. Put off, take off all that old stuff of the old self, and now put on the new, dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Because of what he has already accomplished for you, take off the old clothes, the clothes of the old man, the clothes of alienation and darkness and ignorance and hard-heartedness, of callousness, and put on the clothes of Jesus. Not just of what God has saved us from, but what he has saved us to. There is a fundamental shift in identity, a fundamental shift in citizenship, in ultimate kingdom allegiance. Unlike when a person moves from one country to another country, it is completely natural and even a good thing to maintain parts of even most of your culture, of your home country when you move to a new country, Paul is saying, no, no, it's not that. This is totally different. 
You belong now to a new country with a new identity. And citizenship in this kingdom brings entirely new cultural expectations. And we'll see in coming weeks, it even brings new language. Paul has lots to say about the way that citizens of the kingdom speak, the way we speak to one another, to the outside world. And so he's saying this is who you are now, forgetting what was behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Putting off, putting on. No longer alienated from God, moving toward him. So again, let me clarify what this passage is not. It is not saying that all non-Christians are dumb, are unhappy, are joyless, are the worst versions of themselves, and it is not saying that all Christians are perfectly ethical, are unbelievably wise, are always the best fulfilled versions of ourselves. Christians are not saying, aren't we so awesome and wise and that everyone else outside of these walls is dumb and ignorant. They're just the worst. No. We've already read in chapter 2 that all of us, apart from the intervening grace and mercy and kindness of God, are all of us dead in our trespasses and sins. And all living without the light of Christ are fundamentally separated from God. There is nothing in this saving gospel of grace and forgiveness, life and righteousness that is dependent on us being awesome. In fact, Paul says the exact opposite, that the gift of God and salvation is not a result of works so that no one will boast, that no one might boast in their own awesomeness, but might only boast in the awesomeness of God. And yet what this passage is calling all humans to is what Kyle explained earlier, repentance. That being an an initial agreement with God about his existence, about his character, about his good demands over my life, agreement with God that I am fundamentally alienated, separated from him and under his just judgment for my life of self-justification, my life of self-indulgence, my life of self-worship, my life of using him and using others to ultimately try to advance the kingdom of me? And then agreement with God that I have no hope apart from the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus, the one who has loved me and gave himself for me, and that I now, in a first initiating way, now belong to him. This is called conversion, repentance, agreement with God to be converted to be brought from death to life, from darkness to light. But then, past an initial agreement with God about all these things, then in ongoing agreement with God about all of these things. That as Martin Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed for the entire life of believers to be that of repentance. That our whole life is now that of repentance. Of sin, of weakness, of failure, of even ongoing traces of futility, and yet being made new in Christ, now being putting off the old and putting on the new. It is not a moment thing. But as Kyle said, the moments of our lives which makes us into the image of Christ. So where are there places in your life, in your desires, in your demands, 
that perhaps if you were to step back and look, you might see some calluses. A lack of moral feeling. Paul says to you, do not walk as the Gentiles do. Do not walk as those who are outside of the covenant knowledge of God and the covenant love of God. Our consciences are like muscles. Without attention and without exercise, our muscles and our consciences can atrophy, they can lose all usefulness, but they can be grown back. They can be strengthened, built, nourished. Are there areas in your life that you know that God's word speaks clearly to, but your conscience perhaps doesn't feel all that badly about? Or that you know God's word speaks clearly to, but in the moment, your desires, your demands, don't speak with the same force of clarity that the Bible does. Start exercising. Start exercising. How? How do we exercise our conscience? How do we begin to agree more and more about what God says of our lives? Well, Paul says here in verse 23 that we put off the old self, corrupted by deceitful desires, and instead, verse 23, the way that we can become convinced to then put on Christ, the new self, is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Our spirit here is likely what Paul described in Ephesians 3.16 as our inner being, the kind of like the internal power station of desire, the things that we, the, the, the place and the power source of, that is dictating to us what we most want in our life. We are to renew that power station of desire of our minds, he said. That what you love is like inextricably bound up in what you think. And what you think about then is bound up in what you love. It's kind of hard to figure out chicken and the egg thing here. But Paul is saying that our desire, our thought life, is something that we should actually give more attention to, not less. How we think about the ways of those who are walking in lives that are apart from the covenantal knowledge and love of God, the way that we might even think about politics. We might think about possessions. We might think about entertainment or work. Are there moral, moral calluses building or really hard built and like calcified on the way that you think about some of these things, especially in the areas that Paul has specifically mentioned putting off here, like sensuality, and impurity of the body. Again, it is not that Christians are obsessed with sex, as is often the accusation. It is just that we begin to think more clearly about why humans have sexual desire in the very first place at all. Stuff like some of the things that I shared in uh, our singleness seminar a couple of years ago of pursuing an actual sexual maturity a sexual discipleship in which all of our desires, married or single, come under the lordship of Jesus as we follow him in self-denying joy. Which doesn't mean that single people lead less than human lives or live lives wasting their sexuality. We give deeper thought to those things, those realities throughout the week. Things like Sam Albury saying that because marriage shows the shape of the gospel, that singleness so shows the sufficiency of the gospel. 
So single Christians, he says, who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex in the marriage bond. Or as Glenn Harrison puts it, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. Desire in, that we have it at all is our inbuilt instinct for the divine. A homing instinct, that kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing and then urge us to go there. And so when I began to think through this kind of sexual discipleship in my life, throughout the day, throughout the week, whether I am single or whether I am married, whether I am young or whether I am old, then I can become more and more convinced that leaving behind the old self is actually for my good. That doesn't come naturally. That putting on the new self that often includes self-denial is actually for my joy. That inviting others into this life of belonging and life and joy is really and actually worthwhile, is good, and is even built into who you are as a human. Not out of like a condescending, hateful judgment, but of compassionate, hospitable love, of the wisdom of God. When throughout the morning and the day and the week, I'm actively thinking about, remembering, and preaching my, to myself that I am alive in Christ. that I am his and that he is mine. In the moments of clarity and right thinking, I belong to him and he has made me alive. That because he has saved me and is bringing me even now to one degree of glory to the next, then I am more likely then in the moments where the old self is deafening and seemingly and perhaps we're convinced is undeniably persuasive. No, no, old self, old self, no. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is alive with Jesus. She is his. Ongoing, active renewing of my inner power station of desire. Not just sexual desire, but in what I am convinced will actually give me the good life. Our desires and our thoughts are just so inextricably linked. What we think about, we love. What we love, we think about. And so, without these boring, ordinary, everyday practices of reading the Bible, of prayer, of talking with other Christians, of praying with other Christians, of weekly coming to this gathering over and over and over again, these things are not one-time or even one-year magic bullets, but they slowly transform. As we've said so many times, you'll never be what you're not becoming. And so a few months ago on Colin Hansen's tremendous podcast, Gospel Bound, he had on a pastor who recently wrote about his appreciation of art. And he told a story about a professor who taught a pottery class. Stay with me here. At the beginning of the semester, this professor who taught pottery told the students that they could have their final grade weighted or graded on two separate scales. They could choose. They could either have their final grade based on just the sheer volume of pottery that they produce. Something like 50 pounds at the end of the semester would get you an A. 35 pounds would get you a B. 20 pounds would get you a C or whatever. And they, or they could put all of their grade on just one piece. 
one piece of pottery, one bowl, one cup, one pot that took all of their attention and care. He would always ask, which students do you think produced the better work? Now, if you're like me, you probably think the ones who put all of their attention and all of their care on this one piece. They put all of their singular focus and devotion on this one piece. They would create amazing work. But he said that every single semester, without fail, the students that made lots and lots and lots were always, by the end of the semester, making better work. Why? Well, they knew from the very beginning of the semester that they needed to get to work. And just by cranking out the pottery, just by cranking it out, at the, very, at the beginning of the semester, very bad pottery. Then they slowly got better, and slowly got better, and slowly got better, and by making mistakes and by honing their craft, by the end of the semester, they were making quality work. The other students maybe started thinking about their final project, maybe like two-thirds of the way through the semester. They hadn't grown at all as potters. This is the Christian life. And one semester in this life of the pottery class is give or take 80 years. We like to microwave things as Americans and we hate slow growth. But keep cranking out that pottery this week. Go make some cups and some bowls this week. It's probably going to look really crummy and the Lord will be pleased. He is more patient than you are and he is overflowing with grace and kindness. Exercise your conscience this week. Put it to work, not in like a legalistic, now God will finally be happy with me kind of a way. Now I'll finally live a better life than all of those sinners out there. No. But where are the areas in your life that you need to put off? Places in your life to reorient the hiking trail of your life that is finally now getting well clear of the cliff. Do not walk that way any longer. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of who you actually are in the risen Lord Jesus. In the saving gospel of his Son, now sealed by his Spirit, God the Father has created you for good works, that you might walk in them. He has created you for himself and for your joy. He has created you, he has created us, his people, this church, the body of, the, body of Christ, to be united to him, maturing into the head, which is Christ, that we might be who we are, his, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. That is where we are going. This is who we are now. You'll never be what you're not becoming. We are saved by the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Hey, I love you all. And I love, like, getting to be a spleen to your finger and to your elbow and your big toe. Uh, this is a great church. And I'm glad to be maturing along with you. Uh, next week, the pithy one-liners of immense practical application begin, including the very self-evident and the very easy to, under to understand uh, phrase from Paul, be angry and do not sin. That's coming next week. Uh, so we'll do all this together again then, and we've got a lot to work through. One-liners, but that we can dig, 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 dig in. So let's continue to grow, to mature, to make some crummy pottery this week, and we'll keep growing together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, that you have saved us from death to life. Father, we pray for those who are here tonight who are perhaps wondering, is this true of me? 
Have I been brought from death to life? Father, we pray that by your spirit that you would bring life, that you would give this gift of repentance to be able to agree with you about who you are and who we are. Father, bring life. Help us as your people, those who have come to this initial saving repentance to live a life of ongoing repentance, to put off and to put on, to put off and to put on. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself glorious in our vision, in our desires, that we would seek your kingdom above all else, and that you might then add all other things to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.